This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. All right, I'm coming at you tonight from the Missoula County Library. My wife's a county commissioner. And well, I should start out by saying I'm with Wyatt Verlin, and we're going to be talking a little bit about demography, human demography, and how it plays in to the future of hunting in America. And but uh, yeah, I'm in a place that an institution that I've never been in before. I've kind of been saying in recent years that I think libraries are outdated. I don't understand it. When in an era when you can get any reading material you want directed to your phone, why do we need a library? And but this is kind of a beautiful facility. Um so I don't know. I'm I've warmed a little bit since coming in through the doors, but uh, I may, and maybe I just say that just to get a rise out of people because people are gassed sometimes when you say that I, you think that the library books, I don't know, but that library, right. when you say to some people that libraries should go the way of the horse and buggy, some people get very upset by that. My wife being one of one such person. She's a county commissioner. I'm in the county library, so maybe that has something to do with it. But they set me up with a nice, quiet room um, that uh, appears to be kind of soundproof. And it's real official. You sign up for it, and they give it to you for as long as you want, and the door locks behind you. It feels very nine to five in here, very professional. So, I don't know. We'll see if it helps with sense making. So, Wyatt, tell me about yourself. You just finished a degree, a degree in philosophy. Uh, yeah, I um, I'm 24. I went to DePaul University in Chicago, um, and yeah, I finished about two years ago now. Um, I'll be going to grad school soonish, um, probably this fall um in philosophy um and yeah i'm a hunter fisherman and forager um do all three um in illinois uh which is a state which is kind of the polar opposite of montana in terms of public land hunting act although it does sound like based on your podcast that things are going our way pretty quickly out there so um you know, which is something I can get into. Um, it's, it's really not good out here. Um, but nevertheless had, had plenty of good hunts in my day and I've fished my whole life. I'm kind of an adult onset hunter. Um, and then mushroom picked my whole life as well. So. Where do you go fishing? I actually fish. I mean, I live in Chicago proper and I fish in the Chicago river. Um, I learned, I picked up from some European guys, European style carp fishing, um, strange as that might be to some people, but I love it. 
Um, they fight hard. It's fun. What's European about it? Um, it's just the methods. Like you have special rigs, um, special rod types. Although I ne- I don't necessarily use those buzzers. It's a whole subculture within a subculture. European style carp fishing, um, or Euro style. Um, how does so. it? Yeah. How, okay. So what is it? Yeah. What are you, what's your terminal tackle? Yeah. The terminal tackle would be like a hair rig, which, um, is that a fly? It's a hook with a, um, with like a hair coming off it that, and the hair, the like piece of line is what you put your bait on. Um, and then it stays on and the hook itself has no bait on it because carp like to pick something up and then spit it out. So if they pick it up and the hook is actually like not attached to the, the bait is not on the hook. The bait is attached to this chunk of hair. It's not a, it's not a literal hair. It's a piece of, it's like you make us, you, you tie it up a certain way so that there's actually like a piece of line coming off it in a double knot coming off the like just a tiny piece coming off the back of the hook Uh and then that's put your bait on like a boily or corn or whatever how does it stick to this piece of hair uh you have like a little stopper and you have a double knot oh the end of it oh so he slurps that up and he gets the hook while he's doing it yeah while he tries to spit it out actually okay um, hooks right in the bottom of the lip is this common carp yeah, common carp. Yeah, not Asian carp. We don't have those yet in the. I, mean, I think they've caught like one, but yeah, not yet. I caught a, a ginormous carp a few years ago on a Rapala. Okay, sucked, yeah. He sucked in a crankbait. Yeah, I mean, I love. I they're they fight so hard. I don't know what people hate about them. I guess you can't eat them, but so if you're out there trying to find like the best fish for eating. There's other fish. I mean, I fish for other stuff. I fish for bass. I fish for trout, salmon in the in the lake, um, perch, uh, whitefish in the winter. I go up to Door County and do that. That's a good eating um, fish. That's a really good eating fish. That, that's a probably lake, a lake whitefish. Oh, that's that's probably some of the most fun I've had fishing is like a day out ice fishing on Green Bay. Like, oh, you catch them through the ice. Yeah, yeah. Just Lake Whitefish, or do you catch Menominee too? Uh, no, just Lake Whitefish. I've never caught a, I've never caught a Tulabi or Menominee or whatever they, whatever people call them. Yeah, they're very similar, I think. Yeah, yeah, they are. But yeah, there's a lake out here called Flathead Lake where they've been introduced. Where Lake yeah, Whitefish, I mean, yeah, and it, I, I'm told it can be outrageous fishing. Yeah, they're kind of endangered, I think, on Lake Michigan, or like they were, and now they're coming back. I don't really whole story. Yeah, or threatened. They are in Illinois. Oh, maybe, maybe. Okay, so yeah, okay. Never seen one in Illinois. I do know Wisconsin has a few. I think Michigan has a few schools, um, and they're kind of coming back. But that's cool that they're there. I know that. Yeah, they're very abundant in this lake. There's no limit on them. Really? Yeah, a guy gave me a few. A couple years ago, they're giants. They're probably good eating too. Yeah, they just tasted just like so. Where I used to catch them in Michigan was in Sault Ste. Marie. Okay. So where the 
where Lake Huron and and right. Lake Superior come together. Right, right. There's a power. I shouldn't be giving away the spot, man. I <laughs> don't give away the spot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. Yeah, no. I'm. I, there's there's still good fishing on the Great Lakes. You just got to look for it a little bit. Um, smallmouth fishing here is crazy in like Southern Lake Michigan. Um, mm. every year someone seems to get pretty close to the record now. Oh, um, really? Big fat asses, huh? Big fat. Yeah. Seven, eight pounds. Damn. Yeah. I like eating smallmouth. Yeah. They're not a bad eating fish. I wouldn't eat them. I don't like eating large mouth. Yeah, I know. They taste like mud, but yeah. So you do a little. Just do a little driving out from town and fish. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Or sometimes literally, I mean, literally I live right next to the river. I won't give away my spot, but I live right by the river. And literally even in college, I will just walk to the river and then fish with all my stuff. Mm. Uh, and it's awesome. I mean, the river is actually one of the better fisheries I've seen. Not just carp, but catfish, bass. Um, cause a lot of people think it's way dirtier than it actually is. Um, but they, but you can't eat up. any of the out of there. Uh, you can't eat any of the carp over 12 inches or any of the catfish over 12 inches cause they're polluted, but all the rest of the fish that people catch. Oh, are, people. Oh, okay. So you can eat some yeah, fish they out are, of the Chicago like, river. Yeah. I think they're actually, it's now so clean. They're considering like making an advisory that you can swim again in it. Oh um, man. Uh, that's yeah. a freaking success. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. I just had Hal Herring on the podcast. You know who he is? I don't know. Do you you know backcountry hunters and anglers? Yes, yes, yes. I'm a member, but yeah. Okay, so he he's the host of the Backcountry Hunters podcast. Okay. We were talking about how polluted the Ohio River is. And he said something really interesting. He said, if I lived there, I'd eat those fish even though you're not supposed to just kind of like a takes a devil may care. Screw it. This is, I live on this planet and we did this to this river and I, we're just going to deal with it. And I'm going to eat those fish. Yeah. So I thought that yeah. was a really interesting stance, you know, that is, a, that is an interesting stance. And I, I kind of appreciate it too. I mean, it's just gutsy. Um Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a where I grew up. There's a there was a a coal fire plant on one end of this Muskegon Lakes. This twenty mile long, three mile wide lake. I could be okay. screwed up about that, but that's what how the dimensions I remember. And then it the Muskegon River dumps into that, and then the lake empties into Lake Michigan. Okay, and there's a there was this power plant, the BC Cobb power plant there, and it had a hot water discharge like all coal-fired plants do. And man, the carp would stack up in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've seen fly fishing guys, not guides, guys, like guys who are really into fly fishing will go down south, I think. There's like some plants still on the lakefront around Indiana. And they'll fly fish for carp in the middle of winter on Lake Michigan, like on the south side, far south end of the lake, and smallmouth on the fly, like all mm. day. 
We we just rake them. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk about fighting hard? Hook one in the tail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Twenty pound carp in the tail. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then the Yellowstone where I live. You know, the Yellowstone. Everybody when they think of the Yellowstone, they think of a trout river. But down where I live, way downstream, like way closer mile wise i believe to the confluence with the missouri than the headwaters it's a warm water fishery sogger walleye smallmouth catfish carp right, right. Like all the... kinds of junk trash fish yeah suckers yeah. buffalo uh, you name it shiners are buffalo not are awesome too i've i went to texas once to fish buffalo near austin and i caught a 59 pound smallmouth buffalo Jeez. i didn't know they got that big they don't get that big here yeah i mean the thing is is like that's why i love this european style carp fishing like we can catch the biggest ones will take that stuff oh um, you've really got a methodology around it you know mm -hmm. um, and it's not just like chucking out a bunch of corn and a circle hook mm. um, but guys will yeah. fish guys and gals will fish for these carp and they tend with fly rods and they use caddis fly nymphs yeah yeah and yeah the other thing we use is like mulberry imitations oh 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 i've seen carp eat yeah, mulberries yeah 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 i fly fish for them too a little bit and it's awesome you see like you see a mulberry tree dropping over the water and like you just see the carp coming up and grabbing them, and then you cast one out, and it's amazing. They just swoop in and go. Oh, you're and kidding me. Wanted. Yeah, that's it's so cool. There's a the community college I went to in Muskegon, Muskegon Community College. There was water underneath it, like all throughout underneath that was the design that was like these cement okay. pools. And there was carp in those. And I think I saw carp eating mulberries in there one time. Wow. Yeah. You know what, uh, man, and those mulberries are good. I miss those. Yeah, there's one right down the block for me, actually, here. Yeah. I think they're excellent. Yeah, they are. They're good. They're good. There's uh, a there's a tree a couple miles from my house, and it was on the edge of the swamp, and where two roads intersected, two county you know roads, paved roads, and that it was a giant one. And every year there would be possum, a pot multiple possum or over the course of the time the fruit was on the plant or raccoons that would get killed right there because they'd be out in the road eating those mulberries and they get schmucked yeah that makes sense you know so, you know why those are here how they, uh, they're not silkworm? from here silkworms silkworms that's right yeah, that's the yeah. food of the silkworm yeah yeah i'd like uh, to look into how they take that silk and turn it into a garment have you ever looked into that? I I have not. I, I there is like a whole subculture I think of people that do it now as like a hobby. Like almost oh, like, you're kidding me! I think so. Yeah, I think there is. I think I've seen stuff for it. But I've so they have to have a little plant, like a, a plantation, right? A little grove. Of I don't trees? think so. I mean, because like to keep, they just go out they and collect the it. Worms. They just keep the worms and then they buy the food, which is oh. like the leaves. You like oh. I think, yeah. Mm. Um, 
but I don't know. I don't know that much about it. I'm not the authority on that. I am. I am. I mean, I have made it my life's work to talk about human population and growth in America and how immigration intersects with that and then ecology in America, but oh. not silviculture, not silkworms, um, unfortunately. There's a couple more things that I want to touch on before we get into the topic matter at hand. One is my dad grew up in Chicago. Okay. Okay. And he carved out, he and his father carved out existences as sportsmen living in town. Yeah. I mean, my great grandfather, I, yeah, great grandfather, my grandmother's father would go out. He lit, they lived in the city. And he kept a couple hunting dogs and would go out pheasant hunting at an orchard that today is literally a mall called Old Orchard. Oh, um, it's gone now. Like, but they would just that reminds me of Big Sky uh, Ski Resort in the town yeah. of Big Sky in yeah. Montana. Here, they named all the roads after animals they displaced, <laughs> like oh. Grizzly Bear Lane and Moose Road. You know, no, it used to be very common for guys to be sportsmen and be able to live in a city i mean that's sort of the downside of where things are today is it's really hard to not if you don't live in the countryside if you don't get to live in a rural area being a sportsman is exceptionally hard um especially if you live in a city like chicago where it's going to be two maybe three hours for me to get to some decent accessible hunting land and then like how how the hell am i going to go scout it all the time so it just requires way more energy and effort than if i just lived down you know the street because i lived in i lived in green bay briefly and i gotta say i actually thought green bay was awesome um i could drive five minutes out and be in turkey country and I would go turkey hunting in the spring that I was there, and it was easy. Like I just got it was right out of town, right outside of the city. Um, but that's kind of how I imagine Chicago probably used to be um, before everything got so built up. My dad's dad. My I remember my dad telling me my dad's dad would he'd put on a big trench coat and go out to some of the big cemeteries and he'd have a little bow and arrow under that trench coat and he'd walk <laughs> around like all morose like he was mourning but he'd be looking for bunnies yeah yeah that's funny that's actually a great story um what do you know what neighborhood they were in or i think south side of chicago i don't know yeah, where yeah. yeah no that why why do you live there um just where I grew up, I actually grew up in a suburb um, outside of Chicago, but um, north of north of the city. Um, but just the general area I grew up in, went to college here. Um, and I do love living like I actually enjoy living in a city, um, despite the fact that it makes being a sportsman pretty hard. Um, but I don't think like a lot of guys who are sportsmen really think like, Oh, the city's full of like antis or something like that. I think that's mostly not true. Like I've met maybe like one person who's anti-hunting and I socialize a fair amount and like I've never hit it or anything. 
Like I'll go to a party and brand like be like, I was just hunting like type of thing uh, to my friends or something. Oh, with as much pepperoni pizza as you guys eat yeah. and hot dogs and shit. You can't be yeah, too I, anti. I, I mean, maybe it's peculiar to Chicago because it's kind of a more kind of not conservative in the political sense, but like conservative. Yeah, yeah. Socially. Yeah. Yes. Maybe Chicago is a little less filled with anti hunters, but I just don't encounter like a ton of people who are anti. Like I've met people who are curious, but never like against it or something. Man, I've had some great times in that town. Yeah. Not in many, many, many years. Ah, many years. I think the last time I was there, I went to the Taste of Chicago Festival. Did they ever see that? Have do they still have that? Yeah, yeah, they do. I went and saw the replacements there, which was my favorite band yeah. when I was in high school and in college. Fuckers are loud, man. Fucking there's so, loud. There's so much stuff. I mean, that's why I like living in a city, and it tears me apart the fact that I can't live in a city and easily be a sportsman too. Like I can't do you know, 50 years of 50 days of hunting every year or something like it's kind of got to be maybe two or three weeks out of the year. I get to go. Um, what are you most. doing to your master's degree in philosophy? You're going to well, be a lecturer. I, yeah. My plan is to get a PhD. Um, I don't really want to get too far into it. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the plan. Right what do you mean? Now. You don't want to get too far into it. You can't get any further than a PhD. <laughs> No, no, I meant like as to what I plan on doing, not because I don't have plans, but just because they're uh, secret. Yeah, they're not. Um, yeah, it's just not something I necessarily want to be like going on about right now on a podcast. Um, but this is the most that's the most interesting thing that I could possibly dive into. Never, <laughs> you don't normally meet somebody that doesn't want. To, that says I have c- concrete future plans, but I'm I'm disinclined to tell you about them. <laughs> well, part of the problem, part of the problem is, is I don't know. Uh, I I just don't know what the market for philosophy PhDs is going to look like. So I'm sort of looking right now. Um, I hope it's great. I hope I'm it's great because if there's one thing the world needs. It's more introspection. I agree. I agree. I completely agree. But I wish the world saw it that way too. Um, at the moment, you you kind of told me a little bit. You said that you want you wanted you want you're doing something like you're specializing in political inter- philosophy. Political yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind like of- August August Compte. You know, yeah, that, that yeah, yeah, that dude yeah, went crazy. I've never read any comp, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I am, but I would probably rather, I would rather like find some obscure thing and build a niche for myself than be like a quote unquote, like very popular political thinker or something like that. Um, man, uh, It just seems like either, either. Okay. So philosophy lectures are either getting a degree in philosophy, a PhD in philosophy makes you extremely articulate or people that are extremely articulate become philosophy lecturers. 
Yeah, that's extremely that's, articulate. Probably because you have to, I mean, you're reading, I mean, assuming you do the reading, now things are, I mean, the way undergraduate degrees are conducted, I think is kind of a joke, but it's another topic for another day, sort of. Um, like, I mean, if you do the readings, though, and I did, I mean, you're reading a solid, you know, at least several hundred pages a week um, of reading material through undergrad. Is um, what's the, what was the, where did you get your undergraduate again? DePaul, which isn't like some crazy school or anything, but still. Is the department like infected with postmodernists or is it pretty, can you, is it pretty, uh, good thorough going yeah, i mean it's infected in the same way every department is uh with like identity politics all like wokeness um yeah postmodernism. um but there are some solid people there um and even like even if the worst people are teaching you something that kind of can't be taught another way like for instance if you're reading Maybe I shouldn't say Plato. Maybe if you're reading like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, there's just like a baseline of things that like, even if the lecturer doesn't agree with, they have to like teach you. You know what I'm trying to say? Well, that seems like, like a very good idea. Yeah. And so I think as bad as it was, you do end up learning things either way. Plus you're doing the readings and that's where like 90% of the as in philosophy for philosophy majors, that's, I think 90% of the degree is just the readings. Um, Primary source materials. Yeah. Yeah. Did you so, read Hegel? I did read Hegel. I oh actually, my God. I actually, have, um, well, not, not easily Hegel. We read Kant, which is, I think Kant is worse than Hegel. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I think Kant's much worse. Yeah, just extremely I, formal. Lots of, yeah. lots of uh, discipline-specific jargon. Yeah, I, I and it's hard that. to translate to English too. Um, so a lot of it kind of gets lost. In yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many words in Hegel. He was German. Well, they're both German. Both Germans. Yeah. So there's a lot that that is like. Here's a long German word you now have to like understand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Heidegger's worse on that than Hegel or Kant, but that's. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, he's another German. Another German, yeah. And the father of existentialism and also well, a Nazi. I wouldn't say that. I'd say, I'd say like the father yeah. of existentialism okay. was like Kierkegaard. Um, okay. Which is like well, much earlier. One of the early existentialists. Will you grant me that? Heidegger? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was definitely very influential on like the biggest existentialist, which is Sartre. Um, and he was also a, a Nazi. He wasn't. Yeah, he was. That's yeah. And it's it's very unfortunate, too, that he wrote his diary is called the Black Book, which sounds very evil. Um, like if I was going to be a Nazi and make my diary, I would not make it the black book. Um, really, that's what his diary is literally called. It's, it's, it's really poor word choices. He made Why did there. he call, what's it about? Is I mean, just his diary, just his diary. 
Well, it's like a diary of his thoughts, basically. It just got published, too, because like there was always sort of a discussion as to whether he was like really politically that way or whether or not um, like he just joined out of like necessity or something like that. And then the Black Books came out and it kind of said that he did have sympathies that way. Mm. So um, that was... Yeah, that was unfortunate um, on many levels, but still worth reading. I mean, it's separating the guy from what he writes. Did um, you read Malthus? I'm segueing into our topic. Yeah, um, we did. And we read Angles against Malthus. Oh, um, Ro- uh, Robert Angles? Like- no, 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 no. Yeah, um, Angles, Marx's. Um, yeah, buddy. Wasn't that Robert? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, he wrote a he wrote a treatise yeah. against Malthus. Yeah, he wrote a treatise against Malthus. Um, it wasn't quite a treatise; it was more like a long essay. Um, and that's sort of the basis for, I mean, still to this day, I mean, I would say the better end of the cornucopian argument um, is based off of Angles' work. And there, I mean, it's a good argument. And frankly, all right, let's be uh, let's start to be a. Now that we're getting into this, let's start to be a little bit more sympathetic to the audience if we can. So yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about uh, Thomas Malthus. Yeah. Who in what, 1804, he predicted that because human population grows, what, geometrically and in and food production, our ability to grow food doesn't grow isn't a pace. A, yeah, isn't keeping pace that we would that starve. we were going to starve. But he didn't. He didn't factor in how innovative human beings are, and like the advents of advent of, of advanced agricultural techniques, genetic improvement in plants and livestock. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so, yeah. What's the cornucopia hypothesis? Well, cornucopians say the opposite. I mean, they say that. I mean, Angles's argument is basically that sort of, while it's true to an extent, population matters in some sense. Um, at the end of the day, a certain percentage, you know, you could call it the wealthy, whatever you want to call it use more resources than most people and they're the lar- they're they're the reason why it might appear that we can't feed everyone um that's a very very like sort of bastardized version of his argument but i think it's sort of like the easy explainer um if that makes sense um as to like his rebuttal to malthus um i would say i'm neither i'm i so there's Malthusianism, the old Malthusianism, which is really about crop production and food. Then there's Neo-Malthusianism, which still is about that, but also tax on ec- ecological interests as like ecological collapse, the environment, environmental destruction, pollution, all of that. And then I kind of put my position as like post-Malthusian because I don't think... 
I don't, I don't believe that we can't like, can't like, cannot support a heck of a lot of people. I would say, well, we already are. Yeah, we already are. And, and frankly, you know, if someone said to me, someone came from the future and like, there's a hundred billion people, I'd be horrified, but I wouldn't be like, oh, I don't think that's possible. I would say maybe it is. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know the exact number that is possible and what's impossible. And I don't try to know that. My whole thing is like, what's desirable? Um, do you want to live in, you know, you take a state like Indiana, which is roughly the same size as Bangladesh and Indiana has what, like five to 10 million people or something. And Bangladesh has 140 million people packed hmm. in the same same size space as Indiana, which is more desirable to live in, you know. And in my opinion, I think Indiana is a lot better than Bangladesh to be a person who's born in there. Um, yeah, I mean, it gets it gets pretty hard to think about. Yeah. pretty quickly if you get if you start thinking in a very very detailed way you gotta you end up making trying to adjudicate whether many 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 people with a c minus quality of living is a better situation than somewhat fewer people with a b plus level of life satisfaction yeah right? yeah Absolutely. it becomes a quality versus quantity argument Um, yeah i mean which is better japan where most people have to live in a apartment i mean japan's getting better and there's a lot i could say because i i actually think japan's sort of a model um in a lot of ways for like what human demography could be um especially in america and in the west but nevertheless it's still very heavily populated i think they have like 800 or 900 people per square mile and and now shrinking right they're they're now it's finally repl- now yeah. it's shrinking and and i mean that's all those asian countries are now shrinking china yeah and that's yeah. that's the big argument is like you have a bunch of people who are like oh well this is horrible for the economy and it's like maybe on like a like total growth level it is although i could point to poland which has a declining population um and has for decades now and has posted economic growth every single year for even during uh 2008 recession poland posted economic growth um so i don't think that's entirely true but let's just say it is that that a decline in population will mean an economic decline um i mean japan still has the highest quality of like one of the highest qualities of life in the world um and it's only going up their life expectancy has gone up i believe a few percentiles of a year whereas ours has dropped just in the past like 10 years has dropped almost two years our life expectancy in the u.s is that because of obesity um it's it's such a wide variety of issues you got obesity mental illness um fentanyl and heroin addiction um suicides are up um You've got, I mean, there's a, there's a plethora of social pathologies on the board, um, that are pretty not good at the moment in America. 
Um, now we, I'm, we both know, I think that there are people that are very, very smart people that are very alarmed at the drop in fertility. Elon yeah. Musk being one of them. Elon Musk is concerned. And the thing I ask those people though, is like, when is enough enough? Like, I mean, I look at, I mean, freaking look, look at uh Northeastern Illinois. Like we were talking about how you were able to carve out a way for yourself as a sportsman, maybe 60 years ago and be an urban resident. And now everything's just so developed outside the city that it's very hard. I mean, it's, it's a very hard way to be a sportsman here. Um, mm-hmm. Unless you have a lot of money. Like if yeah. you have a lot of money, then, you know, then it doesn't matter. You can hire a guide. You can do all those things. And like, I do hire guides from time to time, but it's like, I can't do that all the time. Like I just can't go hunting all the time. Yeah. You know, there's another, there's a, there's a hunt quietly team member that lives in Chicago. I should put you in touch with his name is Ben loss. Oh yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that'd be very cool. But yeah, I mean, like I say to those people, it's like, I mean, when you talk about population, you really get slammed with both the left and the right. Cause the right tells you, Oh, well we all need to have more kids. And that's like the best thing ever is if we all just had, you know, five kids or eight kids or something and our fertility rate needs to rise. And like, that's the biggest problem. If you talk to the left, they tell you any discussion of immigration um, and the levels of immigration in America, they tell you is racist. Even if it's just a discussion about the, well, I'm just talking about the numbers. I don't care who it is that immigrates. Um, you know, it's just the overall number, you know, sitting there that has to be discussed. Um, if you're going to discuss the environment, in my opinion, and this is not like some, you know, the original, I mean, the founder of, uh, Earth Day, Nelson Gaylord, I believe he adopted a restrictionist stance on immigration. Edward Abbey, very strong uh, opponent of the current mass immigration system that we have. No, oh, that's I mean, interesting. It's a pretty long list of environmental icons who took this position. And then they say, Oh, well, like all those guys were racist or something. And it's like, you know, maybe a few of them were, but it's also not particularly relevant because that's not why they opposed mass immigration. Like it wasn't coming out of their personal opinion on this or that type of person. It was, strictly a question of numbers right Um, you know how many are coming and i mean right now it's at about one million legal so people who are coming here legally um which is already vastly higher than really it's ever been in history like even kind of at the peak of like what you know what's known as the great um the great wave of migration in the early 1900s until the 1924 Immigration Act or 1925, can't quite remember, um, stopped it. Uh, even then, you know, this moment would be considered rather exceptional. Um, and then you've got 2.2 million illegal. And then you've also got uh, in annually, annually. And then you've got another 
million, possibly more coming in on various like short-term visas. So like the 1 million and the 2.2 million are here to stay. Like those are people who are coming here presumably to stay for at least a while, possibly have kids, whatever, which, you know, I wish all those people well. Part of why I'm in this is because like the actual immigrants we do admit, I think should have the opportunity to live in a tight labor market. What do you mean um, in what? Like in terms of having um, basically having more jobs available. No, I mean, you said basically the reason I'm in this. Uh, Yeah. I mean, a big part of why I'm in this is for in what themselves. I mean, beyond the environmental aspect and the like you mean by in this you mean the big reason one of the big reasons you like to think in the immigration issue yeah yeah okay okay immigration issue is i mean you know beyond the hunting and and environmental issue and you know that's that's probably number one but beyond that a big reason is just wage tightening um i don't think you know i don't think american citizens should have their wages depressed by 3 million people coming and working for not a lot of money. Um, and I don't think that new immigrants, people who come here, you know, if we were to tighten up that pool of, of immigrant labor, the overall wages would probably go up substantially. Um, and not only that, but housing would go down. Um, housing costs, housing costs. Yeah. So it's, and that's why, I mean, that, in my opinion, that's the real reason why nothing is done about the issue um, is because a lot of capital is invested right now in housing. I mean, you might have seen stuff on BlackRock buying up houses to rent out. And like they're doing that because they know the population. What's BlackRock? It's a financial services company, I think. Um I don't know. It's some sort of bank, something along those lines of an investment bank. Um, and But they're buying up tons of property nationwide, and they're doing that on the assumption that population is going to keep on going up because of it, mass immigration. Because our fertility rate's below replacement um, in all states, I think, except for South Dakota, which I think is exactly at replacement. Yeah, I heard a demographer recently recently say that we're at peak baby, that there'll be no, there'll never be more babies <laughs> in the yeah. world than there are right now. Yeah, that's probably that's probably accurate. Um, yeah, I mean our our so like our fertility has not been at replacement for decades. So the only thing causing population growth is immigration in America. In other countries, it's different, and like. There's a global component to population, the population issue, but like, I don't have any power at the global level. I barely have any at the local level, but like, if there's a place where I could actually make a difference and we're like, we could actually make a difference. It's at the local level, um, you know, in terms of advocating for wildlife. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the simple fact is population and growth affects hunters really two ways. I mean, first, it raises the number of people, um, obviously, that displace habitat via sprawl, increased energy and resource extraction, um, 
farming, etc. And then second, it drowns out existing hunters' political power, um, which I know to get to one of the things you talk about a lot. Um, You're you saying know, if, if growth in the hunter population doesn't keep a pace with growth of the population at large yeah 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 country yeah and like the hunter recruitment people are always yammering on about how we need more hunters because if we don't have more hunters then are you know democratically we're not going to be able to continue hunting which i think might be a slightly inflated sense of how many anti-hunters there are but i don't deny that like Certain types of hunting are controversial, man, like bear hunting, dove hunting, all those things. And like the more people trophy hunting, yeah, quote trophy hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I don't deny that the politics does matter. I mean, there's, there are certainly like the reason why California is increasingly anti-hunting is because you've got 40 million people living in a state. And, you know, maybe less than 1% of those are hunters. Um, and, you know, that's just, that's just that. I mean, it lowers, but hunter, the hunter recruitment people are always like, well, we just need to get more hunters. And in order to fix that. But the problem is, is like the reason why they always cite these numbers of like hunters are declining, but they always cite the percentage of the total population. But that percentage of the total population doesn't matter the number is like the actual number of hunters like has stayed pretty steady it's declined a little bit from like i think the peak in the 80s yeah i that's that's true according to my according to fish and wildlife service data yeah that we lost a couple million hunters but it's not terrible it's not like a nosedive like the way they act the way they the hunter recruitment people talk about hunting you would you would think that like there's like half as many hunters or something, and it's but just not- it seems like that's even the alarmist perspective I don't hear anymore in the last few yeah. years. That could yeah, they- be partly because an article I wrote and another article that <laughs> that yeah. uh, that Andrew McKean wrote for Outdoor Life, arguing that we really don't have any idea how many hunters there are. Yeah, I mean, there's and, and yeah. then and then the COVID saw an increase in hunter numbers, may or maybe it's partly because the the incredible declines in opportunity that are the norm yeah. throughout this country. Yeah, I mean, I, declines and draw odds, things going from over the counter to draw, decreasing bag limits, land access. That's, I mean, that's probably at least here out east in Illinois. Probably the number one people reason people give at, give up on hunting is they lose access to a piece of property they hunted. Mm-hmm. Um, like the number one, I rarely meet someone who's like, I lost access and continued hunting. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. Somebody came out. along and offered more money than they could offer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the unfortunate. If you live in a country where everything is like well the population will just continue to go up because we'll just accept 3.2 million people a year if you're if you have money like you're going to be investing that in housing because you want to keep building more and more houses 
You want more and more strip malls. You want more and more places to live. And that's just a big downside for wildlife. And when it comes to access, it's a huge downside for hunters. I mean, at the end of the day. Um, Do you know about the MIT study? The um, one in the, ninth, the famous 1972 uh, MIT study that predicted societal collapse in 2040. Oh, is, this, is this the Peter Turchin like uh, study um, with like elite overproduction and and stuff like this? Well, I, they I just know. they just did this big Monte Carlo simulation with okay. a bunch of different variables that they thought would be drivers of right of population trajectories and so they they made a bunch of assumptions about how fast agricultural production would increase oh okay this i i think i have heard this is a separate study yeah Somebody redid that analysis not that long ago, and they thought 2000, and they came to the conclusion that 2040 was optimistic. I, I mean, the thing is, I don't know. I, I don't claim to know. Nobody really knows. I don't think. That's, I mean, that's it's, the thing. You know, and some, pe- some people bash on Malthus left, right, and center as being so off base. But at the same time, you have this other well thought out thought yeah. or fancy computer computer facilitated thought experiment yeah that suggests that just was recently you know uh, yeah. updated that suggests that uh yeah we're heading towards societal collapse i mean a I mean, hundred years from now there probably will be i mean i think that i think most of the population forecasts say that a hundred years from now, there'll be fewer yeah. people in the United States. They also say, no, that. there will not be fewer. And that's, that's sort of the perversity of this whole situation. I mean, when you talk about, when we talk about immigration, the sort of perversity of the whole situation is that we actually might be in a world with less people or a stable population. And the rest of the world, the rest of the countries in the world might be having less and less people. And the United States population will just keep going up um, if we continue to let in three million people a year, even a million people a year. I mean, as long if if it's that high a level, um, the U.S. population is just going to keep going up and up and up and up. Um, um, yeah, but I don't know. A lot of people that think about this for a living think that we're nearing the peak number of people. And I that, well, you're going to see it. Well, they, they, apparently next year, or maybe it already happened this year, India topped China as having yeah. more people than anyone. Nigeria is going to have more people. I think they think they think by the end of the century, Nigeria will have more people in the U.S. Like, yeah, what, by the end of the century, demographers believe that one third of the people on the planet will live in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's the only place really with, I mean, them, Afghanistan. And I think, you know, you look, there's a few other countries. 
scattered through the world that have above replacement rate fertility. But as far as like industrialized countries, like like fully industrialized countries, there are literally there's literally one that has above replacement rate fertility, and that's Israel. And I mean, that's because you've got both God and country in that country. I mean, at the end of the day, and that's why people have a lot of kids there. Um, oh, you're saying that their religious their religious inclinations. Yeah, I mean, them to have that, lots of kids. Yeah, it's it's a combination of on um, the religious spectrum. I mean, because I think a plurality of people are still secular there, but on the religious side, people are having a lot of kids, the like ultra Orthodox and Orthodox sector. And then on the secular side, you've got Patriot, this intense patriotism, um, to have kids. Oh, um, which so is there, the government encourages Israelis to have big families. Yeah. 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 Um, cause I mean, they're at war. I mean, they're yeah. not literally at war, but right. But they're always on the precipice of always on the precipice. Yeah. So you ever heard I mean, of the, that's, that's a heard... case? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the full the full quiver society? I I have I have heard of this. Yeah, the they're like Christian fundamentalists. Yeah, they're centered in in Michigan, I believe. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's based on like a a Bible a Bible verse about equating a full quiver to having a large family. And, yeah, I mean, the and thing their goal is to have so many kids that they can take over the political system. Yeah. In the, and I mean, in the, the thing is with that stuff, it's like, I don't care. Like, I'm not here to like make people have less kids or something. Um, it's just about respecting everyone's personal choice on the matter. Like, do you want less kids? Do you want more kids? And then also respecting the will of the American public to have less kids. Like overall Americans have chosen to have a lower fertility rate and like with that comes drawbacks and positives like there are draw i don't deny that there are drawbacks to that um i mean some but, of the reasons we're having less kids are like are fantastic like that yeah. we we've we've given women more choices and when you give yeah yeah when you exactly. give women more choices they delay or postpone having yeah. kids yeah, no, exactly. And it's, yeah, I mean, some of them are great reasons and there's benefits and drawbacks to everything. But if the American public as a whole has decided to have less kids, I think that that sort of general will to have less kids should be respected. And we shouldn't just be like usurping that decision by the American public by importing enough people that not only is like, all of the possibility for like them to experience the benefit of that in lower housing prices, a tighter job market, and then also in terms of increased open space and accessibility, um, all of those benefits, like not just enough that it cancels everything out in terms of those benefits, but actually keeps on worsening them, like destroys any benefit that would have been there. Mm -hmm. And makes it those problems actually worse. Yeah. Less open space, we're going to have, you know, higher housing prices, and we're going to have a much looser job market where 
getting a good paying job is not as easy as it was 60 years ago before the 1965 Immigration Act and even 40 years ago um, or even 30 years ago. Because again, I mean, we're really at like peak numbers here. We've really never had this level of immigration to the United States, even even legally. Um, if you just took the legal numbers, uh, one point like, two million, and the and the green one card. million, I think, yeah, about one million, yeah. Um, and that's even just that, like, even under Bill Clinton, it was I think like seven hundred thousand or. 800,000. Um, and so it's, it's just vastly higher than it's ever been. And that's just totally canceling out all the possibilities we can have for lower population growth to benefit everyone here. Yeah. I, but yeah, I hear you, but you know, but then a lot of people, very, 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 very smart people think that we're not going to be able to take care of the elderly. Yeah, I've heard this, but again, I don't see evidence of it in societies where there is a declining population. Like, I mean, I brought up Japan, like how are we taking care of the elderly? If our life expectancy is getting lower, but Japan, which according to those people should have this tremendous problem with taking care of the elderly has a, a, populate a a uh life expectancy that's getting longer yeah well according to okay so i just read this big article about the human population in in uh national geographic about a month ago and that article focused a lot on china and i think the 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 situation in china is simple similar to the situation in in japan north and south korea um all of Europe, basically. Well, uh, all the Asian countries. Yeah, all uh, the well, all the East Asian countries, not so much. Well, actually, India now has is now below replacement too. So eventually, they'll hit, um, they'll hit a wall with their population as well. Okay, so what I was going to say though is that, yeah, according to this art that article, it's, it's it hasn't hit yet. I mean, they haven't got to a point it's going to get much much worse in terms of there being very few young people per old person that's see i mean the thing i don't i don't buy with this though is uh people have been saying this about japan now for like 30 years or something um that you know you can go back and read articles all the way back to the 1990s about Japan's population problems and by problems they mean a population that's going to decline or is in decline um and it just has never materialized like they they always make this prediction and they say it's you know x number of years down the road and Japan just deals with it you know whether it's automating things um you know they they obviously have one of the most advanced robotics sectors in the world um, in Japan. Yeah, yeah, that could be. They have. They just have a bunch of robots that can do. Yeah, I mean, they pro- can do prostate surgery and. Yeah, I mean, there's there's ways to do these things. Like I look at, uh, I mean, in Europe, most of the European countries are declining 
to although to a lesser extent because they have them they have also very high levels of immigration um but you know one of the things uh that's been looked at by the by the immigration restrictionists that i hang out with um you know a lot of farmers will say oh we need migrant labor to do you know to pick crops and there was specifically this one guy who's kind of like a famous farmer who made this argument about his asparagus crop um and he was like you know look there's no way to automate it and you know we need this migrant labor and somebody looked it up and like there literally is in europe a machine that can do the picking of asparagus and they've already got that figured out oh um, in in uh hesperia michigan just north of where i grew up is the asparagus capital of the united states they have wild or, or no or no cultivated cultivated and they they have an asparagus festival there's an asparagus queen i mean <laughs> they really are uh an important asparagus growing that is a very important asparagus growing region and and they still rely heavily on migrant labor yeah there. but it's it's just i mean like i was weird i was talking to this um this one farmer who has like 10,000 acres on the kansas colorado border um about the issue and they were telling us like we don't need that much migrant labor she's like to do my 10,000 acres i have six wait 10,000 acres of what wheat oh so obviously yeah but i think of that as driving around in a right right so obviously there's some differences there yeah nonetheless that's a highly mechanized form of agriculture but the thing is in in other countries even the things that we associate with migrant labor orchards asparagus like these less i don't know what you'd call them lower tier not staple crops um cash crops like that even those are mechanized in a lot of countries now and not countries and so they don't require like incredible robots um or something so what Um, do you want to do with all these desperate people that want to come here well that's that's sort of the i think it's actually a crime what we're doing to the third world um by taking their best and brightest every year um i mean if you look for instance at india i was just seeing some statistics on this but if you look at like their top tier of test takers um, for whatever their sort of like version of the SAT or ACT is, um, like the majority end up leaving and that can't possibly be good for India to lose those people. Yeah. And then I hang like, out in some academic departments, uh, yeah. with collaborators and it's wild. Like university yeah. of Georgia is a place I've spent some time and almost all the faculty are from other countries yeah because i mean and it's like it's it's a it's labor colonialism i mean at the end of the day that's what you're doing like you're taking the best and brightest on the one hand like legally those are usually the people that are coming legally like are the people who are the smartest people in their countries and could really fix their countries and then on the other hand you're taking the hardest working blue collar workers because like if you're hard working enough and you're like you've got enough of a will that you want to like 
get in some cartel guy's van and like hop over the border, like take that risk. Like you've got some gumption and like you're a hardworking person. And like I've got a great respect for those people. Yeah, you're a go-getter. You're a hustler. You're a go-getter. You're a hustler. But it's like the the fact of the matter is, and like I know the president of El Salvador was talking about this. He was like, I actually agree with President Trump on immigration. I don't even want to get in on tr- into Trump, but he was like, I agree with him on immigration because I'm losing my best, hardest workers every year. Um, they're just leaving the country. And that's it's very hard to develop these countries if if you look at the first world and it's just sucking up the best people every year. Um, so I look at it as the opposite. I think um, when we talk about all those desperate people, it's like actually the question is, is like, could immigration actually be making them more desperate? Yeah, I see. And that's I think like that's the issue no one wants to talk about or solve, but it's simply true. I mean, there's just no way you can avoid the fact that there is tremendous brain drain and labor drain going on across the third world that, I mean, it's, it's apocalyptic. I mean, I know, I mean, I'm only second gen American, so I still have some cousins growing up in Greece. Um, and they all left. You look kind of Greek. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look Greek to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dark hair, dark eyes. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I mean they they all left Greece to go to like Switzerland and and these kinds of places and it's like I mean, I support they're my they're relatives of mine. Um but at the same time like I can't not notice that the country of Greece is a lot poorer than those places and is going to be really hurt by the fact that like my cousins who are like intellectually very capable people. I mean, one's a mathematician, another's an engineer, et cetera, are like, they're leaving and they're not coming back and they're not going to be able to help fix that country. Yeah. Um, that's an, yeah, that's a valid point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the problem we face when we talk about like, oh, the desperate people. And it's, it's also sort of just like, all right, like, even if we assumed that that was correct, even if we didn't take the position I just took where I, I pointed out that that sort of labor, um, and brain drain problem, even if we didn't take that into account, we have to realize is like, we're only taking a drop in the bucket of these places like we're not we're not going to be able to fix like unless we literally let in like eight billion people tomorrow like the whole rest of the world basically aside from like western europe japan and australia new zealand and canada like there's only a few countries in the world that are like truly developed places unless we let in every single one of those people gave them a plane ticket to come here we we can't fix like all of their problems. And even if we did, we couldn't just give them, we don't have jobs to give all those people. Um, so it doesn't fix the problem of their desperation to just let in people. Um, it only, it only takes, you know, a certain percentage of them and might give them a somewhat better life. Although even that, like even just that little bit is controversial. 
I mean, like if you look at conditions of migrant labor in America, I mean, we're talking about sweatshops still in America. Um, there was just that New York Times report about a slaughterhouse that was using child labor, and that was mm. all migrant labor, which the New York Times didn't cover, but most of that was migrant labor. Um, we're talking about, I mean, there's these like, there's these farms that are basically like neo plantations, um, you know, growing crops and having basically no labor laws or anything for their migrant laborers. Um, so it's like, is their quality of life actually better? I don't, I don't really think so. And I mean, there's studies now that show that like during the, the great wave, um, there was, which is, you know, early 1900s, the people that came to America actually had their standard of living drop the first several years they were here. And it really wasn't until that 1925 act that for the most part shut down immigration, cut it down to about 200, 300,000 people a year. Um, it was all, it was not until then that those people really saw a really big increase in their standard of living um overall mm. um so i would not be surprised if actually like in our attempt to help desperate people around the world we're actually making it much worse not even just at the level of draining their countries of talent but also just for those individual people we might actually be giving them a much worse deal than they think they're coming in and getting um, boy they sure do think they're going to get a better deal because of the lengths they go to yeah, yeah. No, I mean I I I completely sympathize. I just and that's why it's not about the individual immigrants. It's not about like hating people or anything like that. It's just about the numbers. Um and you really got to stick to that. Like when you talk about this, it has to be really clear at all times that you're not vilifying anyone. It's not about that. It's a question of how many people do we want to sustain here? How many people do we think is a sustainable number to admit every year? And what kind of population do we want to see in America? Um, human population. Yeah. Because I mean, I look, I mean, there's, I think like, you know, if you were to run the numbers on all big game animals, and if you include turkeys and hogs as big game, you have maybe 50 to 60 million big game mammals in North animals in North America. Um, and then you have, you know, maybe 40 million ducks on a good year. And then you throw in the fact that rabbits are collapsing pheasants in a lot of places. Like in Illinois, pheasants have collapsed. I don't know where I've seen one wild pheasant my whole life here. Um, in the supposed farm country. Mm -hmm. um, it's like classic pheasant habitat um bobwhite quail have collapsed like rough grouse collapsed so like our wildlife is in deep trouble for the most part and like for allowing in all those people and then we've got hunter recruiters saying oh well it'll just the problem of like hunters as a percentage of the population can just be solved by recruiting those people. And let's say we get, you know, let's say we have 30 million hunters in America. How do 30 million hunters work with 
50 million big game animals (laughs) doesn't compute like it doesn't work the math doesn't add up and less habitat than they already than they had yeah it doesn't work yeah it's yeah it's just such an ignorant stance to say uh, yeah it just ignores so much this the idea that we need more hunters just ignores so much relevant data about wildlife populations and habitat loss and i mean one thing i I don't even think anybody believes it really that that's the way well i i I think well okay there probably are there are probably people that just accept the dogma you know it's driven by people that make more money by there being more hunters the push for more hunters is 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 uh the product of people that make more money for more hunters but then there are naive people that play along board and work on it yeah yeah and i mean i do disagree with you in a certain sense in the sense that like i know you've said like you know thank god we don't have to be hunters to be good people and we don't have to have like the majority of the population or even a large portion of the population doesn't have to be hunters. Well, they aren't, there's only four. Yeah. Like in a certain sense, I agree. Right. Like I don't agree. I don't believe you have to be a a hunter to be a good person, but I would say like, if let's say the population gets to 600 million, which is what I think it's projected to and under a high immigration scenario, which is the scenario we're in right now. Um, and hunters is a portion of the population dropped to like 1%, less than 1% of the population. I feel like that would be losing a part of America's soul and history to have that few people, that few people within the country as hunters. Um, I, think make it, it, I think it might restore the soul because it'd make it so like you could potentially bang on somebody's door and get on. Not have to pay. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying pay, like pay uh, thousands of dollars to access hunting property. But that, I that, that banging on the door mean, seems like a, banging on the door and getting permission. Yeah. Or striking out into the wilderness and having a worthwhile hunting experience. Those seem like traditional American things. Yeah. But you're not going to have that with 600 million people. I mean, you're not going to have. A wilderness to escape to. well yeah that's okay. the problem yeah like we're, and we're changing two variables at once no I, I mean the I'm, number of people we're doubling the number of people in this hypothetical and yeah cutting, and cutting hunters per capita dramatically from so 5% so so one percent what, what's the current i think the current participation rate is like five under five percent four to five percent something yeah. like that of americans Um, so I'm just saying if you doubled the number of people, 600 million, you have 2%. And then if you just did the like assumed number of people who basically lose their access to good hunting land as a result of doubling the population, which I would say would probably be about half, um, just based on the way we currently sprawl out and develop, um, you're you're going to have probably about 1% of the population hunting. Um, but you're not going to have more land. You're going to have a lot less land that's open to hunting. Um, and I mean, I see it like 
where I grew up, there's still some open spaces, but you just can't hunt any of it. You're not allowed to. Like there's public lands, they're just not huntable. There's one state park that's huntable. Um, and it just gets swamped. I mean, there's no there's no deer there after like the first week of season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Um, all right. Anything else? Um, I would say not really. I think, uh, I think that kind of covers most of the main points. I mean, I just want to, I do want to emphasize, I mean, I don't believe that like population is, I don't, I don't say we can't, I don't believe in the old school Malthusianism of we can't support a lot of people. I think maybe we can, it's just a question of desirability and it's especially relevant to people who are hunters. Mm -hmm. Um, like how many people should America have um, is a, a relevant question we should ask ourselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And we should do, um, if anyone is interested in learning more, I mean, there's a great couple of websites on sprawl and how population has caused urban sprawl. Um, there's one on Texas, texassprawl.com. Um, which just shows lost open space in Texas. And then you can go drop down by County and you can learn how much was lost due to increased use of land per person. So like how much each person in that County's land consumption changed versus how much, how much of that land loss, open space loss was caused by increased population. Oh. Um, and Texas, I mean, just as an example, state, and it's probably the worst state, lost six sixty six hundred square miles of open space um, since nineteen eighties. Wow, um, wow, that's wild. So, I mean, yeah. like, we're dealing with a real problem here that like nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, like all I see is, I mean, I believe in climate change and and all that but it's like if the only thing the green movement wants to talk about is climate change then we're in a real bad position (laughs) yeah Um, you know like we we need to talk about some other problems too um for sure all right thank you sir absolutely it was great pleasure hope to talk to you again yeah absolutely all right Bye. bye